Hello, and welcome to the fifth ever English Network podcast. You're joining me, Ted. And me, Alex. And today we are looking at the uh, wonderful poem, uh, Poppies, by Jane Weir. Uh, so without much further ado, I'm going to pass this over to our history man on the spot, Al, just to look at the context of the poem. Thanks, Ted. Um, really, really enjoying that new unofficial title I've got. I hope I can live up to it. I want to get a new jacket with some embroidery in the back as well, so you can really live up to it. Nice. I look forward to that too. Um, so this poem is, uh, we just kind of recap of the poems we've looked at so far. Um, we've looked at a few power poems in um, Ozymandias, um, Prelude, uh, London, Prelude, Miles Duchess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we started looking at conflict poems last week when we looked at Bayonet Charge. This one is also a conflict poem, but slightly different, both in terms of um, the, the subject matter that it covers, uh, the perspective that it takes, but also the, the way that you, the historical context you can apply to it. So rather than being quite clearly about a World War I situation, which we saw in Bayonet Charge, this one we can read as, as an exploration of conflict in, in kind of like modern day, or at least the 21st century. It was commissioned by Carol Ann Duffy to explore some of the impacts of Conflict, uh, the conflicts in in Iraq and Afghanistan, both on the soldiers themselves and on and on their families. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it just kind of like brings a new again, like I said, a new perspective into this idea of uh, conflict poetry. Mm. So uh, for this poem in particular, what do you think makes it quite interesting? Well, I think well, like I said, I think it's that change of perspective, not looking um, necessarily from the point of view of the soldier, uh, but in this case, looking at the point from the point of view of the mother. It's this this idea that conflict isn't contained on the battlefield. Um, it's unrealistic to think of it that way, uh, and also we get to see, in, in, like all the poems, have a kind of dual theme of power and conflict. We get to look at the power of memory um, and how memory itself maybe is quite a quite a tricky thing to really to to pin down um, and maybe something that can't quite be trusted interesting well I look forward to hearing more about that um, I think for me I really like the kind of the warmth and the, the the nature of the relationship that's explored in this poem I find that there's there's a, a the other poems in the anthology are often exploring big ideas and asking very interesting questions but sometimes they're like that you use the term intimacy they like a human warmth yeah. and I think the story that's at the heart of this poem is very compelling uh, has some really universal themes yeah. and I find this poem gets a really emotional response from a lot of people because of the power of its subject, ma- subject matter um, especially those readers who are mothers I imagine yeah well 100% yeah and sons as well yeah, uh, yeah. right so I think uh, you're going to be looking at the language uh, that's used in the first stanza Al so what have you got for us well, yeah, I mean, just before we go into the language of the first stanza, I think it's just important to kind of clear, clear up what this poem is actually about and what's yeah. happening. Um, so the speaker is, is a, a mother of a soldier who we can assume has um, gone to war and has, has been killed in action. And the poem kind of like tracks her thoughts, the way that she, she has memories of what he was like and then um, almost imagines his death as well. Um, and starts to, and we it just the poet start the poem starts to explore these ideas of grief, um, and we're gonna we can just kind of like track through, look at how the language and structure um, expresses those ideas, mm, really in a subtle and beautiful way. Yeah, absolutely. So it starts with this idea of Armistice Sunday. You know, um, we're actually recording this the day before Armistice Sunday, so it's very topical. Um, it's when everyone's wearing poppies. Where it's it's where um, rem- like remembrance is kind of shared by a nation more than just by the people who are involved in it. But she's talking about 
her own her own grief, her own personal grief, but obviously in this public context, which I think mm-hmm. is quite an interesting way to start on it. Um, she starts she the, the line on on the third line it says before you left I pinned onto your lapel crimped petals spasms of paper red, and she's talking about obviously the, the poppy itself, and we're all familiar with what that with what that looks like. Um, but we're already seeing this kind of um, you can you can look at it in, in a variety of ways. It's almost it could be like a foreshadowing of of his death. Mm-hmm. The idea that this is pinned onto him is something that's it's again it's a this idea of, yeah exactly yeah. it's like a fatalist point. Um, but also this image of spasms of paper red. Um, so we think about spasms as a, like an involuntary movement, something mm-hmm. that's uh, like a, a, a very sudden movement. And the paper red is this; it, it's just very symbolic of blood. Um, so it's so it's almost as if she's remembering um, she's remembering that time, but at the, but also at the same time imagining uh, the death of her son when she she wasn't there. She can only imagine it, and I think probably mm-hmm. that's even worse. Um, just to imagine that that moment, but those spasms of paper, I think that's a deliberate choice of language to to reflect that that yeah. injury and that that wound that he that he's such yeah, and such an extraordinarily aggressive verb. I mean, it almost for me it conjures the image of you know a body being thrown about as being torn apart by a powerful gun or a shotgun. Yeah. It's just uh, extremely extremely violent. And just on that line as well, like the idea she's you know she's placing it on on his blazer. Mm. So is she placing the the poppy when he is a young boy who is going off to school for the first time? Is it when he's first wearing his military uniform? And I think that links back to your point earlier about not always being able to trust your memory. Yeah. So is she remembering? Is she almost going back? Like even then, I knew that he was going to go in the army as a young boy and he would die. Mm. Even then, I knew when I sent him off to war, he was going to die. Or is her memory being coloured and influenced? Well, by I think what I mean happened? that's it. That she probably might be thinking that at the time, uh, but at the time of writing, or the speaker yeah. is, is is kind of expressed in that point. Um, obviously, you in. You could never hold her to that, yeah. to that standard. Like you should have known it was going to happen. But I think what I, what I was hinting towards before was this idea that her memory leaves her. She see, she comes across as quite disorientated. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not really sure, or it, it's unclear where she's up to when she when she's talking about um, the moments before he left, and yeah. then when it, does that that kind of like melts into when he was a child, and then it melts into when he's not there anymore, um, and. The, the reader kind of shares that disorientation mm-hmm. and you can imagine that the grief itself is disorientating mm-hmm. you know something that was once there something that you were sure of something that was steady something that was your whole life which yeah. is which for her was her relationship with her son um, when that's taken away it's naturally going to be not only an extremely painful experience but um, extremely confusing one as well absolutely and just in terms of structure from the first stanza we the poem is very much taking place she's very much thinking about her memories about something that's already happened she's very much fixed on the past, yeah. This is a dramatic monologue, and she's talking about something that's that a moment that's happened in the past that she yeah. can't quite seem to escape. Yeah. So we're brought back that we're brought back to that memory with her. Mm-hmm. But the exact details of the memory, and you know whether or not it, in that first stanza is that her son going to school, is he going to war? We're not certain, and that sets the tone for a deliberate ambiguity in the poem. Yeah, um, and also, I mean, I mean, the fact that, that it's written in the second person, but as a dramatic monologue, monologue yeah. is, um, it's this idea that she's she's talking to her son, but her son is dead. Um, mm. So that in itself, um, he, you know, that's quite a common image that people talk to people who they've lost, even yeah. though they're not there anymore. Uh, quite a poignant image, a moving image, um, but also speaks to the kind of, uh, again, that confusion or the, um, the she's not thinking, she's not in a rational state of mind yeah. at this point because of, the, because of that grief. 100%. Um, so the second stanza, uh, this really, really beautiful um, kind of uh, imagery and kind of events are happening in the second stanza. So we see how she's. Uh, this reminds me of my own childhood. So she's, uh, you know, she's 
she's got sellotape around her hand and she's kind of like she's taking this your cat's hairs off possibly the collar so is it kind of a shirt for school is it his military uniform again that we're not certain it's quite a vague term mm-hmm. um and she's yeah that because the idea of a mother really taking care of her son that's quite like a it, yes it's quite a boring kind of everyday event but of course the memory and the fact she's not able to do this anymore makes this really intimate and we almost sense that she's pining for those moments yeah we see how she's kind of you know you're st- She's uh, you know, playing Eskimo kisses with him, and she's kind of like again a really intimate image. And it, when I read it, I almost feel uncomfortable that I'm seeing something that's almost very intimate between a mother and son. I'm yeah. quite a prurient sense of I shouldn't be seeing this. This is this is their moment. This is this is something very special for them. You know, running. Um, she wants to run her, her kind of fingers through his hair. So she's thinking about all these very intimate moments. Yeah, and I think there's there's a and again um, that this this adds to the confusion of the of the poem itself because. Even when she's talking about these very intimate moments, and they yeah. are intimate, um, she she's talk, she's using um, Jane Weir chooses to use uh, verbs like bandaged, and again, just like we see the spasms of paper red when we talk when she talks about the puppy, yeah. um, we see the the kind of like the, the image of injury yeah. um, of a war zone of her son's, and again that moment of a son's death that's that extremely violent um, death that he will have, he will have come to uh, is something that she's something yeah. that she's imagining, yeah, and and it's and it and it runs. Uh, I would say maybe it's juxtaposed. It's like a juxtaposition of ideas that runs through this poem mm-hmm. of the of the intimate and and the, and her like motherly love, but also the, the, with that the the kind of horrific, um, almost inescapable imagining of what her son's death was mm-hmm. like, which just, has just kind of inserted itself into these yeah, memories. Exactly. I was just thinking with the, when you were talking about that, that the intimacy of moments, it reminds me of um, the what is it the Seamus Heaney poem when all others were away at mass. Yeah. And he talks about peeling the potatoes and it's yeah. something and it's in that mo- mundane action, the kind Seemingly of the, banal, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Where the, the nothing nothing is especially is happening. Yeah. But when you look back at in in the Heaney case it's when his mother was dying. Yeah. In this case it's talking about when the son is gone. That's when you start to realise that those moments were the moments that mattered. Yeah. It's like it's almost like a cliche to look to yeah. look after the little things. Loaded with importance in a way yeah. you could appreciate at the time. Yeah. And you know, just again, one of the things I really love about about this poem is the word selection is just fantastic. So verbs like smoothed and kind of grazed, you know, she's choosing sort of soft, gentle verbs. And I think that really conveys the you know, the, the caring, gentle, maternal love mm. and devotion she had for her son. You know, wanting to do everything for him. You know, treating him so softly, treating him with just absolute love, care, and devotion. Yeah. And it's just two simple verbs, you know, smooth and and, and grazed, but they're just so powerful and, and they yeah. signify the nature of their relationship. And that she treats him so gently, despite the fact you know he's quite possibly a grown man here going to war, going off to kill people. And, and that's shown as well by again, she she she's very affectionate and, and it's very intimate in the way that she the way that she remembers these moments. And and yet he it comes across as somebody who's actually probably quite distant. He, mm-hmm. he feels that distance already. You see it in the first stanza with the with the image of the blockade, um, but then you also see it with the uh, her when she resists the impulse to put, throw the um, to run my fingers through the black the gel black thorns of your hair that in itself is kind of like there's that evokes images of um of kind of barbed wire or something something between them mm-hmm. you know that that hair isn't isn't available for her to ruffle anymore it's not yeah. it's not hers anymore it's he's he's not her he doesn't belong to her anymore mm-hmm. he belongs to well you could say he belongs to himself or he belongs to the military you know this is his new identity this Absolutely. is who he is now and just on the on those gentle verbs as well, you know, they were very physical in nature, smooth and grazing, and and kind of like running her fingers, you know, that verb around the fingers, like it's such a physical quality to their relationship. Yeah. So she's she's missing that as well, mm-hmm. and that was something that one she was getting ready to let go of for a while at least as he went off to war, but 
her memories don't have that physical that that textile quality that that they kind of that she misses and she craves that touch and that intimacy with she the other sister. And now you know she had to let him go to go to war, yeah. and now he's gone forever. So mm. really, yeah. so much you can explore. And we're talking, you're talking about kind of like uh, universal uh, relatability in mm-hmm. these poems. It doesn't. It, this is this is kind of a universal uh, experience. Not necessarily let sending a child to war, but a child growing up and that and that distance being established between uh, a mother and a child. Yeah. And then with that, with that. Um, Distance culminating in in the death of a child, which, mm-hmm. is, which isn't universal, but it's something. It's kind of like a, a, worse, a prime worse fear, fear, yeah, a prime fear of any of any, of any parent. Um, that that just really kind of like, I just think that's quite a powerful image to, to consider with this poem. Uh, definitely. Um, and just on that note, so we two really kind of again subtle, um, quite normal words, but enormously powerful. So we got. I wanted to graze my nose across the tip of your nose. And then skipping a few lines ahead, I resisted the impulse to run my fingers through the gel black thorns of your hair. So those verbs in the past tense, yeah, resisted and wanted. She didn't do these things as she was saying goodbye to him. And she's almost reliving this moment and playing it back in her head. And she's thinking, why didn't I do it? And, you know, she probably didn't do it because, you know, when we, when we get a bit older, we don't want our mums to kind of embarrass or set us. You know, we don't want, um, you know, he's a big man, he's going to war. Yeah. So she probably doesn't want to embarrass him. But then also, you know, she loves him. And she knows if, you're, if your mother's kind of like crying and upset and treating you like a child, that's going to make it more difficult for him to leave as well. Yeah. And she doesn't want to make it difficult because she knows this is what he wants. Yeah. And she knows as a, as a healthy, normal parent that to be a successful parent means your child does leave the nest. That's the duty of a, of a parent is to, is to raise a child who you can send off into the world, not, not to keep them like a something like tyrannical mother. Mm-hmm. In the home, yeah. <laughs> and the, but the cruel irony here is, of course, is that she did the right thing. But yeah. I think, I think that there's a real sense of regret being conveyed by resisted. She resisted the impulse. Yeah. But of course, yeah, that that noun impulse, that's a very natural, instinctive thing. And I think what she's almost thinking now is, why didn't she do it? It was the right thing to yeah. do to yeah. embrace him one last time. So just for one moment before he leaves the home, treat him and and love him like the child that he still is and will always be to her. Mm. Um, but sadly, she kind of does what society expects for her. She does what her son expects from her. She does the right thing. She lets him go. Um, and on the fa- last line. Of, of that stanza heartbreakingly we've got the very powerful phrase all my words flattened and rolled turned into felt so again you know that metaphor there her words at the time weren't good enough to convey the, the strength of emotion she had mm-hmm. you know there's a great adjective um or is it adjective or a noun ineffable when something is kind of you can't put it into words adjective. and that's the sense of emotion that she's feeling here mm-hmm. she can't put it into words one at the moment when he's going but also now as well as she looks back to that moment, yeah, she, she, the words cannot convey the loss, the pain, the grief, all my words flattened in the face of such extraordinary anguish, yeah. such unimaginable physical, emotional pain in every sense. What good are words? Yeah, that's true. And I think there's another point about the, uh, we said about the distance that he's um, kind of imposing between them as he, as he goes off to be, to be a soldier. Uh, these words being flat and rolled turned into felt. We're talking about the fact that everything that she says and everything that she's done and all the, all the actions that she's done, um, mm-hmm. she's, all the sacrifice that she's made up, up to this point to raise her son yeah. um, has been almost incorporated into the felt, the, the uniform. That's what he is now. He becomes. Yeah. And we spoke last, last week about soldiers being kind of just instruments of war, they're being objectified as instruments of second, war. Second and he's, the clock, yeah. Yeah, and he's, he's kind of, he's now not hers. All, mm-hmm. that, that, all that investment that she's made in him um, is, she's lost that. Yeah. 
and he's gone on to he's gone on and uh, and again imposed that distance between them. And then just going on to the third stanza, I just want to pick out the phrase "I was brave" as I walked with you to the front door. And that phrase "I was brave." This is a poem which is just so. I mean, it, it links back to the prelude in terms of I think this, there's so many different things we could pick out here. But that is a very simple phrase. I was brave. But if we zoom in on that was, that verb is in the past tense. So in that moment, she was brave, but no longer does she feel feel brave. It might be that actually, while she thought she was being brave at the time and letting him go, that maybe that was a foolish thing to do. It might be that at the time she felt extraordinarily strong, but now she feels that now he's gone, she's a broken person. And there's a consistent you know, use of verbs in the past tense in this poem. And I think part of what that represents is she used to be a woman who did something, who, who did things in her life, who had things in her life, a lady of action. And now that she's bereft of her son, there is nothing's happening anymore because she lives in the past. There's no more action. Um, I was brave. No longer is she brave. She's lost her son. She's lost her purpose. I think there's so much you can explore through that mm-hmm. short, short quotation. Yeah. And the fact that she's kind of dragging out that moment where she walks to the front door and mm. threw it open, it's that kind of, she's reflecting on it and in, in, that, in that, that sense of regret is actually quite palpable by the time you get to, into that kind of third line of the uh, third stanza. Of the third stanza. Um, and then you get to the simile, the world overflowing like a treasure chest. Now, whenever you, whenever you get a simile, I always recommend that you, need to, you really need to split it into its component parts. Um, you have the tenor, the thing that's being described. You have the vehicle, what it's being compared to, and then the ground, which is what they have in common. And you need to... The is full of comparisons mm-hmm. um, and on, a, on a range of different levels. So if we look at this one, the world is, is the tenor that's being described. It's being compared to a treasure chest that, that's overflowing. So think about what, the, what do those two things have in common and how does that relate to the themes that we've already discussed. So her son is looking at the world and he sees something that's overflowing like a treasure chest. It means that it's, it's valuable, it's full of potential, full of value, um, something that's exceptionally tempting and yet it's almost something that's unattainable. So mm-hmm. the, the image of the treasure chest is something that has a mythical or legendary quality. It, it exists only in rumour and people will um, waste their whole lives. We're talking, um, you know, you're talking about uh, t- stories of people wasting their whole lives looking for a treasure that might ne- not actually exist. I'm looking at you, Captain Jack Sparrow. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I was, gonna, I was, I wasn't going to mention pirates. You, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you did it for me. Sorry. So yeah, so it's this, the fact that the treasure chest itself has this mythical quality. It it shows that this kind of this. Um, this pursuit of whatever it is that people are looking for in their lives, this kind of meaning or um, like excitement or adventure, that's something that's like a fool's errand. And it's this image of fool's mm. gold. Um, and he's, he's, he's seen it. Um, he's been intoxicated by it. And so he's now under the influence of this kind of like nefarious um, idea promise, that's just going to be, yeah. yeah, it's a promise that can never be fulfilled. Uh, and he and he chases it um, naive as he was. He's a young man. He's not experienced. He's gone straight into the army. We can he's assume. the best he can be. Well, exactly. And he's uh, and but and she's and again, this is her looking back at that. Mm-hmm. She was seeing that naivety in her son, or she's accusing her son almost of of that naivety, or possibly uh, herself. And as exactly, well. and, yeah. and blaming herself for not not realizing that she she knew more than he did about of what of what the world was really like. So perhaps there's a criticism of kind of uh, the army and the war. You think within the simile. Definitely. That's really interesting. And there's, a, there's before, a comparison yeah. to be made there about when we look at um, poems from based in World War One, like Exposure and Bayonet, Bayonet Charge. Charge. Yeah. And there's a, very, there's a very clear difference, I think, between conscripted soldiers and soldiers in the modern day who are volunteer, a volunteer mm. army. Um, you know, if, if we're talking about World War One and World War Two, um, periods of total war. Mm-hmm. That's not the same as conflict today. 
Yeah. It's not that it wasn't that everybody had to fight and every and there was huge amounts of propaganda in terms of um, making sure that everybody had had a duty to go and fight for their country. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's very it's it's more subtle than that. Propaganda obviously still exists. Yeah. Um, but Close it, to it's like this is what belonging looks yeah, like. Yeah, it's, it's it's about it's, finding it's, meaning in your yeah. life rather than defending to the death. Like, you, you know, like the very all, existence of your country with all products that's offering you a lifestyle that's offering you opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Um, really interesting. Yeah. It the adjective. Um, I think yeah. So this, uh, I, so to be intoxicated is to be under the influence of some kind of chemical, to be in, under the influence of something that um, alters your behaviour. So his behaviour or his or his subjective view of the world, you know, he's seen this treasure chest, which we which we can see as kind of like the the uh, experience of going into the army, the all the fulfilment which is being promised to him, um, the adventure and the excitement which is being promised to him, and he's under the influence of that, and he's following it, and you can imagine something, someone being hypnotised, someone being being lured away, um, and I think she's just kind of there's almost a hint of anger that she's allowed this to happen to her son. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just leads us on to the next line, uh, and just go, I'm going to talk about this at length because I love this line so much. Um, and for me, this line represents what I love about poetry and about teaching poetry. Um, so, after you've gone, I went into your bedroom, released a songbird from its cage. So her son goes off, and she goes up to uh, his bedroom, and she she releases a songbird from its cage. And obviously, that's a metaphor we're going to explore in a moment. But just on a personal note, uh, so my mum, uh, I'm very lucky. She's a wonderful mum. She adores me. Um, and I came to Manchester for university, and I remember bringing her the first night after I'd left Ireland. And she was talking about how, you know, she, that, that night after I'd gone, she went up to my room and she was you know, crying in my bed. And that was a really, really heartbreaking thing to hear. But that's something that every mother has to go through. You know, the whole, the cruel irony of motherhood is that to be successful, you have to push your children away. And that comes that moment, that final separation that's, you know, started with the umbilical cord and finishes when your son leaves or, or your daughter. And... And here in this moment, she's done what she should do as a parent, as a, almost as a good citizen, perhaps, you know, her son going to join the army. And she, she goes up and she releases all this emotion. She didn't get emotional when she was in front of him, because, again, that would have been tough for him, that would have been fair in him. So she, she stored it all up inside of her. And then she goes up and she just releases it. This grief pours out of her, this pain, this anguish, this loss, which she held in, and she releases it like a songbird from its cage. She'd kept it caged in there for, for his good. But then also I think we can find a second meaning here. Almost as if this, you know, a bird is something that's supposed to be beautiful, elegant, and a songbird is something that provides us, you know, something that was kept for pleasure and something that was wonderful. But it was very cruel to keep a songbird because it should be out there, it should be experiencing the world. And it's not only her grief that she's letting out in this moment, she's also released her son, who to her was like a songbird, but something so special it had to be shared. She had to, to release it. And what I love about poetry is you can never entirely be certain what a line means. You know, it's kind of, there's a, there's a great line I heard at university. It's like, it's like analysing someone else's dream that you're seeing through a TV screen with bad TV colour quality. So you're never really entirely certain what's going on. So is, is she, as she's remembering releasing the songbird from its cage and feeling this grief after you'd gone, after you'd gone, does that mean when he just left the door? Does that mean when he departed the world because he'd been killed in war? We just don't know. We don't know when this is happening. That's so confusing. We just know that she feels this extreme powerful emotion and she's just letting it all out in that moment. And that metaphor just conveys the loss of parenting, the loss of this mother, the, the, the very nature of, of loss in life. Yeah. Um, extraordinarily powerful. And it goes on for the rest of, the, the rest of that um, stanza, really, talking about that, how, how confused and disorientated mm. she is. 
after that loss. So you know, it's this idea of the the single dove that flew from the pear tree, and it's leading her to she becomes this kind of like um, she becomes she becomes the object of the sentence rather than the subject. She's yeah. the one who's being led along, um, and yeah, she she and it's that she's almost without. It says without a winter coat or reinforcements of scarf and gloves. She's just it's her whole reality has been torn from her mm-hmm. um, and she's left alone and bereft and um, just without without that mooring that, yeah. that, that was her life which, yeah. was, which was which was being a mother and being his mother mm-hmm. um, and you, you really get that kind of and again it's a term that I use every single every single uh, podcast but you get that visceral image of yeah. her being, being torn apart on the inside wow. and her whole reality just being uh, yeah, just being, just falling around her, falling down around her. So as as we go into the last stanza, um, on reaching the top of the hill, I trace the inscriptions in the war memorial. So she's she's at this war memorial, and she's we again very cleverly from Jane Weir, we see the return of a very gentle verb traced. So she's tracing the inscriptions of the war memorial, and we can't entirely be certain when this is happening. Whether or not this is happening on the first day her son went to school, whether or not this is happening on the day she found out she lost her son, or whether or not this is happening years later. But I think the gentle verb traced, it reminds us of the language that was used in the second stanza. And she can no longer graze his nose, she can no longer run her hands through his fingers. All she's got now is the inscriptions in the war memorial. Mm -hmm. The cold lack of warmth from stone, there's no give there, there's no... she's, She's longing for the... You know the comfort and the warmth yeah. of her son, but the closest thing she has is some, you know, some space that's been cut out of rock. Yeah, um, and it's that image of reaching out, isn't it? She's yeah. she's physically reaching out and and being met with what just stone, what and what stone. Yeah, yeah. and and just think about you know that noun war memorial. She's lost her son, and she's been given a bit of rock with his name inscripted on it. Yeah, it's almost a cruel joke. Mm. She's looking for warmth and human intimacy, and we as a society who have taken her son from her have just given her rock. Yeah, so it's as if some kind of uh, there's a there's a line from a song about giving medals to replace the sons yeah. of the people who uh, have died. Um, I think that's true as well. It's that there's some kind of pride attached to that. Yeah. Um, but that's not a that's no consolation, mm-hmm. no consolation at all. And I just think we just couldn't hold myself to my own standard here. Um, what we weren't we there's a line where she says she leaned against the war memorial like a wishbone. Yeah. So really quickly, let's do a quick tenor vehicle ground of that of that simile. And just to plug our Twitter page, uh, if you want uh, resources on that, or if you want to kind of uh, look at how that can be used, uh, not just for poetry but for language analysis of text as well, uh, do te- check out our Twitter page. The link for which will be in the description of this episode. Indeed, indeed. Um, so if we look at what what a wishbone is, I'm I'm imagining the wishbone of your on, on like. A carcass of a chicken is that right yeah did you yes. just use the verb car- the noun carcass that's terrifying sorry <laughs> uh, but, but so what does that look like it's she's leaning against it like that wishbone it's kind of like the idea of her being um kind of she's she's almost like crooked against the wall that's what i'm looking that's what i'm thinking yeah um but also the wishbone is something to be to be broken isn't it so yeah. it's almost like she is on the verge of, of just breaking into wow. um yeah. so i think that's a that's an interesting way to look at that which is it seems like a bit of a benign bit of language and like it doesn't fit yeah but if you do this tenor vehicle ground thing and you think about what a wishbone represents it's something that is broken um and she is on, kind, of, kind of on the verge of being broken. It's something that's there, almost there just to be broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, it's that, I, I, let's think about that, the element of the wish. Uh, she 
well, it's a, it's kind of like a superstition. Yeah. You break the wishbone and your wish comes true. She knows that that that, that her wish, which is to we later uh, hear, is to see her hear her son's voice again. Yeah. Um, that's something that's that's never going to happen. Um, and all she's left with is this is this image of superstition. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that speaks. I mean, a, a great poem is one where every word has so many interpretations, so many meanings, yeah. so much depth to it. And I think we really, really see that in this poem. Um, so, so just moving on from there, we look at the the dove that pulled freely against the sky. We can, we, I think, we can safely assume that the dove represents her son. This image of peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is now at peace. Um, he's 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 flying, she kind of free of the uh, free of the kind of like the pain that that existence necessarily <sighs> necessitates. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and that's kind of like she describes that as being an ornamental stitch so we said about the the lack of consolation in the pride of having of having a, a son who who died for his country mm-hmm. that's no consolation similarly there's it's no consolation to say that um that, that this her son is now at peace and flying freely against the sky mm-hmm. that's not that's not a consolation for her that's an ornamental stitch so yeah. we think about the stitch itself being kind of like the stitch that would that would uh, heal the wound or be used to heal the wound she describes that as ornamental connotations of something that's kind of superfluous it's not it's a luxury it's not something that is is necessarily useful mm-hmm. or meaningful it's just there um yeah. and that's that's kind of like expressing the way that she's feeling the grief um and that she can find she can't she can't find any any closure here and if and if the dove does represent peace then even if peace is attained it's an ornamental stitch for her it, it yeah. doesn't attain anything which reminds me of the great line by abraham lincoln he wrote to a mother who lost five sons um, in one battle, and I think it was in the Battle of Gettysburg, and he writes, um, "I can words cannot begin to describe the pain you must feel, um, but please take comfort knowing down your sons laid down their lives on the altar of freedom." And I remember, I remember two things. I remember thinking how beautiful that line was when I read it. Yeah. I remember thinking of what non-existent consolation that would be to yeah. a mother who's lost yeah. five sons in yeah. one day. Absolutely. And I think we see that here. What does it matter if peace is attained if you lose your son? Yeah. You know. And that's the thing about conflict. Like conflict, we, we talked last year, last year, last week about the uh, the cold clockwork of stars and nations. Yeah. Um, but the, the the true cost of war is a human cost. Oh, it's yeah. not about territory, um, kind of like lost and won. Or it's ideas, a, or yeah. yeah, it's about it's about who 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 dies, like who yeah. who is who's truly affected by it. It's the it's the it's the people who die, and it's the people who are left behind in terms of their family. So. I think that that really kind of that idea of the ornamental nature of that constellation uh, that's a really important um, Im- um, idea to get across in this in your analysis of this poem um, so the last line of this poem um, again is just absolutely beautiful uh, and there's so much room for interpretation here and analysis so I listened hoping to hear your playground voice catching on the wind so in terms of structure this poem very much kind of brings us back to the first kind of stanza uh, where she is uh, pinning a, a you know a, a poppy on her son's lapel, and we're not certain if it's a school uniform. Um, and if it is a school uniform, then maybe this, as she listens, hoping to hear your playground voice catching the wind, maybe she is actually having a memory there of when she was walking past the school and her son was at, and could hear was trying to hear his voice, see so if she could hear it yeah. from the the bedlam that is the school playground. But then also maybe just in this moment, she is by his grave, and she's almost listening trying to go back in time and imagine what it was like when she could hear his voice in the playground and it's that irrational wish yeah like she wishes and Um, we've got we've got two really really important verbs here which are very passive in nature listened and hoping when you hope you 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 know you're kind of powerless you're wanting something to happen that you can't really influence and listened 
well, you have to sit and you have to be silent, waiting to hear something. And of course, I listened, hoping to hear your playground voice catching on, on the wind. She doesn't hear anything. And let's just think about the structure of this. This is the last line in the poem. I listened, hoping to hear your playground voice catching on the wind. And as you finish this poem, of course, it's going to be met with silence. So the actual end of the poem signifies that she's never going to hear her son's voice again. The silence that follows the end of the reading of this poem represents his absence. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, right, that's, yeah. that's really true. Um, and I think it, it also, uh, just in terms of the language itself, we're talk- it's, it's thinking about a um, the, something we spoke about before, about how parents often talk about the the way that having a child distorts time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you speak to any parent, they'll speak, they could say the first you know, the first week has gone quickly or the first year has gone quickly or the first 10 years have gone quickly or now your kids are leaving home and that's gone quickly. Um, and it's about, she's, we're talking about how the time that she had with her son was always um, very, very tenuous. It was just like a voice on the wind. It was, it was easily um, kind of dissipated and lost. Uh, and I think that's, that's quite clearly uh, expressed in this final line. Um, and just a quick note in form and structure. Um, what the use of caesura and enjoyment throughout this poem? But it's the caesura in particular that I think is really, really powerful here and that I think you can make strong comparisons with, with other poems in the anthology. So let's say we look at the second stanza and we can see several uses of caesura here. Um, so if we're looking at near the middle, um, steal the softening of my face, full stop. So caesura, sudden break in a line, we've got to stop there. So she's stealing the suffering of her face and then she pauses. And part of the reason might be there is that as she's speaking, she gets quite emotional and she needs Mm -hmm. to stop herself from losing control of her emotions. Because what she's trying to do here is not to kind of fall into a a ball of a wreck of emotions. She's trying to have a really clear image and remember those moments. And emotion doesn't actually help with that. She's trying to stay composed, stay controlled so she can run through these thoughts in her head. Then she goes on and she has this beautiful memory of play at being Eskimos like we did when you were little. So she's remembering how intimate they were, how close they were, and again she needs to pause. Yeah. Then, she's, she's, then she goes on to remembering how she didn't run her hands through his head, how it, through his, his hair, and again she needs to pause. Mm-hmm. And this Zora here shows the extreme emotion she's feeling. On the other hand, we see several uses of enjoyment. When she's having these memories and when it feels like it's so close and she's reliving that experience, she gets you know, kind of intoxicated with, with, uh, with, the, with, with those memories and she's almost rushing through the poem, savouring those memories. Yeah. Um, and I think you can get some really meaningful form analysis from just looking at the uses almost of every line, yeah, Almost every line in the poem is an enjoyment. Um, yeah, and I think that's just, just an interesting point to kind of just to clarify what you were saying there or, or add an extra thought to it. Um, is that she's comp- maintaining her compose- composure as a speaker, reliving mm-hmm. those memories, but also re- com- maintaining she was maintaining her composure in that moment, yeah. in the way that she was yeah, stealing really her face good, yeah. and, and kind of like suppressing that emotion, suppressing that, that maternal yeah. instinct. Um, and that's obviously going to be quite a difficult thing to do, requires a lot of control, requires her interrupting and thinking through those movements. And again, I mean, every parent can kind of, and every mother in particular <clears> can relate to that kind of, that not wanting to you know, cry and as you're waving your child into school, not wanting to cry in front of all the other parents and embarrass your, your child, whoever it is. So a really, really universal I think you're, you're a great mouthpiece for mothers here. <laughs> I, I, I love my mum. This is actually going to be my Mother's Day present to my mum. Two birds, one stone. Um, so we're just going to finish today by looking at um, the other poems you could compare this poem to. 
Um, so I think you're going to start us off, Al. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to look at um, two poems that I just think will be an interesting comparison for you to make if you do uh, if this does come up on on the exam. Um, so if you look at the, I spoke before about the effects of conflict and how this is different to, to poems like Remains, different to Bayonet Charge, different to Exposure, because it's from the point of view of someone who wasn't actually directly involved in the com in combat. So I've looked at, I think a good one that you could compare this to is Kamikaze. Um, you were looking at where we see the effects of people who were um, related to or very closely related to uh, the combatants themselves and how the the decisions of those combatants and almost like the, their their fates or their destinies had a huge impact on on them themselves so in in kamikaze it's the daughter of the pilot um, who's kind of culturally conditioned into rejecting her father mm -hmm. after he backs out of the suicide mission um, whereas in poppies, it's the it's the mother of a of a soldier who's actually died mm -hmm. in battle. Two very different cultures, yeah. hugely hugely um, different um, attitudes towards death, um, towards kind of like pride and honour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but just very interesting to talk about that in terms of the effects of conflict on different people, different cultures, um, and to different members of of the family. Um, and then also, if you were going to do a kind of a PowerPoint, um, you could look at at the at the emigre. Um, because that is, a, that is another poem which really looks at the power of memory. Um, instead of looking at the memory of a person, it's the memory of a town, or a, yeah. a home city or a home country. Um, and the fact that this memory is possibly not to be trusted. So it's, in Emigre, the speaker talks a lot about how uh, the, her home city is sick with tyrants and um, this idea that conflict is tearing it apart. And yet to her, there's that repeated refrain of sunlight. It's something yeah. that she... She can never shake that positive image of it. Um, and here, in, in Poppies, we see that she has this memory of her son, which, again, she sees, she remembers the son, her son, as he when he was a man, but she remem remembers him as if he was, <coughs> excuse me, as if he was a little boy. Yeah. So it's that kind of idea that memory is possibly, they're not always, they're not always rational, they're not always true, um, and our own subjective view of uh, of our of our memories are sometimes. Not well, like we said, not to be trusted. Indeed. Um, and I'm just going to quickly talk through how this poem can be compared to War Photographer. <coughs> um, so I think, the, you know, firstly, you can look at the narrator in Poppies and kind of your main character, your protagonist <clears throat> in War Photographer. So uh, very, very different, but both traumatised and haunted by their memories. Uh, in the instance of a War Photographer, we've got someone who um, has gone through all these experiences, is kind of like struggling to deal with that, seems traumatised. But interestingly, he seems to accept it and he's quite kind of he gets on with it he in quite a masculine way he's kind of kind of like well this is just the nature of it yeah. this, this is awful and this is terrible but he has a I'm job gonna, to do I have a yeah. job to do yeah. whereas here she's very much kind of broken down by those memories and she kind of like really commits herself to them and she embraces the emotions mm. whereas war photography almost tries to kind of hide away from yeah, it by kind of like yeah. you know and that to a certain extent the expectations of gender we're mm. seeing there in the way those characters are reacting both poems use, in terms of form comparison, both poems beautifully use Azorin and Jonman to express the, the emotions that the, the character is feeling, sometimes not even aware of. Yeah. And then also I think we've got that the way the poems are structured, in particular the endings, really emphasise the message. So in Poppy, she's kind of, uh, this idea, she's, she's listening for that voice. She's, she's caught in this loop of, of memories. Whereas in War Photographer, you know, he's getting the plane back 
to do the whole thing again and no one really cares about his yeah. job and he doesn't yeah. have any impact yeah. and it reminds me of the, the end scene from The Dark Knight when uh, the Joker tells Batman I've got a feeling that we're destined to do this forever yeah. and I feel that both these characters quite tragically are destined yeah. to just go through these, these memories and these experiences and their own tragic loops yeah. uh, for the remainder of and their it, days and that's interesting to, I've never thought of that kind of like um, different approach to, to grief or to yeah. pain that, that you see across Wolf Tucker and and uh, poppies but it's not that the war photographer doesn't feel that mm-hmm. it's that he kind of suppresses it so yeah. his eyes are, are um, well actually you know he talks about the reader's eyes pricked with tears yeah. um, and then he's got this kind of like detached view he looks mm-hmm. at in raw and ordinary pain and he has yeah. that he just reflects on kind of like how obscene it is that we can live um, so unaffected by conflict he's... and yet so um, so aware of it I think with the war photographer it, in my mind it always links with Jekyll and Hyde in that we see the dangers of repression when he's mm-hmm. alone in his, his dark room he's having yeah. I think kind of like hallucina- hallucinations of kind of what he's mm-hmm. seen and what he's done yeah. and he's having these awful kind of like memories and flashes because he tries to push that stuff down yeah. whereas here you know our kind of narrator is just trying almost like in the yeah. movie Inception she wants his memories she doesn't want to live in the real world she wants to submerge herself in what, what yeah. she can yeah um, and so, that's the power yeah. of memory, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, and again, we, 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 you could you, like with all of these, you can kind of rattle off the poems in the anthology. But you talk about the the power of memory and remains. That's another really overpowering um, sense of uh, post traumatic stress, but yeah. an idea that he's trying to escape his memories, but that it's impossible to do so. And she, rather than trying to escape her memories, she's almost wallowing in them, um, trying to kind of like re- reframe them um, as something. Well, actually, I'd, I'd probably take that back. I think she is actually having a similar idea because she's looking back and feeling that regret yeah. and thinking about how, what, maybe what she should have done to, to act differently. Um, so, yeah, I think, I, I think the, the point remains um, that in both poems, there's this, this idea that the speaker is, is at, at the mercy of, of their memory. Of memory, really, really. And I think that's pretty much all we have time for today. I hope you've enjoyed listening uh, to us uh, prattle on uh, me sharing my mother issues and uh, talking about poppies at length but I think we both think it's a great poem and I think if you're picking five or six poems to really know I think for me I would recommend this it's short it's got easy lines to remember and it's great for a comparison of form and structure um, so good luck with your revision uh, and have a lovely time uh, revising thank you for everything English nerds bye bye